Arsenal takes a special and goes bang. It's a beautiful thing. Goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. Fredericks and Johnson, Johnson clearly in front of Fredericks and Bolden. He's home, Michael. Look at this, he's streaking away. Magnificent running. Look at the time. Unbelievable. Welcome to a special edition of the No Dunks podcast. I'm Lee Ellis. The voice you just heard is tonight's guest. He has covered major events and athletes from all over the world for more than 40 years. He's caught everything from horse racing to athletics to golf and tennis, and he's been a fixture at every Summer Olympics since 1984. He's as comfortable talking to Serena Williams as he is Usain Bolt or even Michael Jordan. In 2002, he was inducted into the media wing of the Australian Sports Hall of Fame. His passion and knowledge for sport inspired me to pursue a career in the media world. He's the most well-known broadcaster in Australia, and he joins me on the line from his home in Adelaide right now. He is Bruce McAvaney. Bruce, welcome to the No Dunks podcast. It's a pleasure, Lee. Um, quite an introduction. Um, <laughs> um, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could have done a whole lot more there too, but I had to try to uh, limit it to a few because you have covered so much. Uh, in your time as a sports broadcaster. But I guess right now, this is probably uh, the, the most you've had, the most time you've had on your hands for a while. I guess, um, was was it Richmond Carlton the last time you caught a live sporting event? Yeah, well, look, I've been involved in our horse racing coverage where I'm hosting rather than calling. So we've been doing that, right. Lee's, uh, over the last few weeks. So, and we've extended that contract. We're in a very strange situation like the rest of the world. So with the lack of sport and the fact that thoroughbred racing has continued uh, basically unabated in this country, they've been able to get some protocols in place and they've been able to continue on without crowds. But I know in the United States, uh, there were two or three states still um, uh, competing. Kentucky Derby's been put back. We know that with the Triple Crown. But here in Australia, it's almost been a business as usual in the horse racing business. So we've still been doing that. But in terms of AFL, which is the main thing I do through any winter in Australia. You're right, round one, game one. Um, so what would we be up to as I talk to you now about round seven? We're expecting yeah. probably to come back towards the end of June. So, um, yeah, I'm missing it like everybody else and uh, slightly more free time on our hands. Yeah, do you know, I guess no one really knows yet, but would they be the first couple of games back without crowds again, like empty stadiums, do you think? Lee, I doubt whether we'll have crowds for any of the season. Look, I could be wrong. Yeah. There's a very big chance the grand final will be played before an empty stadium. And, and that that's you know going to be an awful shame. And I guess that's the conundrum for the, um, for the administrators, for the AFL commission. I mean, do they go ahead with the competition without crowds? National Rugby League's in a similar boat. Um, they will. Um, they want the players out there. They, they want the television money. They need the television money. And I work for a network that's desperate to have that content on a Friday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday afternoon. So um, pretty sure it's going to happen. Uh, but yeah. I'm certain it will be without crowds early, Lee, probably for half a dozen to a dozen weeks. And good chance the grand final, which will probably be played late October, early November. As you know, the grand final's traditionally been the last Saturday in September. Not always, yeah. but that's the traditional yeah. spot. And there's every chance it'll be played without a crowd. Yeah, that, that's uh, it, it's crazy. It must feel awkward. I mean, you know, you've never ever experienced anything like that. Um, so I bet it's it's funny because everyone does want sport to be up there again and out there playing. But of course, everyone wants it to be safe for everybody involved. Not you know, not just the fans, for the players and the coaches and the administrators and and everybody. So uh, hopefully. Things turn the corner. It certainly seems like Australia's in a better position than, than we are here in the US. Uh, things uh, don't seem to be getting all that much better. I mean, they're trying to open the, the country up a little bit, but it, it hasn't been met with overwhelming uh, success so far. But anyway, um, listen, there's so much I wanted to talk to you about today, Bruce, um, you know, because, again, you've, you've been around sports all over the world. For, you know, for over 40 years. But right now, what we are getting is a little bit of uh, basketball in the sense that we're getting the Chicago Bulls, this documentary. I'm not sure if you've seen any of it. It's called The Last Dance. And it chronicles that last season that Jordan played for Chicago and he won that sixth championship. And I was just wondering, first off, if you've seen that. And then, um, you know, if you haven't, I wanted to talk to you about that, that time that you sat down with him uh, in 1993 when he was uh, kind of in, you know, pretty much in his prime then and, uh, and you got a great uh, chance to, opportunity to speak to him in a, in a one-on-one setting. 
Lee, I, I've seen the first one. I, I watched it last night with my wife, Annie. I mean, there, there are four that have been released here in Australia so far. I think four of ten. I was absolutely enthralled, and it reminded me so much of that time in 1993 where I had that opportunity. It felt so rich, and, and I can't wait to continue to watch it. It's uh, done in a you know a very professional way, a very artistic way, and it is such a story. Um, you know, the comment was last night that you know there are there are three um, towering figures in American sport: Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, and Michael Jordan. Now. You know what more can LeBron James do? But and <laughs> yeah. you know Tom Brady. It depends on where your you know where your sort of emphasis lies. But I thought it was a pretty good understanding of where he was at. So yeah, look, I was fascinated by that. I mean, I'm going to learn a lot from it. The Scotty Pippen stuff I know is coming up in the second the, the second um, episode, and I didn't know his backstory as well as I should have. So I thought it was superb. So I'm really looking forward to it. And it did remind me so much of that time that I spent. Did you did you get a sense then when you were with him just how many how many demands are placed on him and how much security there is around him and, and just how exclusive it was that you got that access to him because he barely speaks to anybody you know you don't see a lot of Michael Jordan interviews you know so for for someone from Australia to come over there and get all that exclusive access I mean it must have felt pretty amazing for you like how, how did it come about it was um, pretty remarkable I guess it was just like the perfect storm for us so we started a program it was a 13 week series it was called seasons it was 9 30 on a thursday night sort of almost prime time stuff free to air television 1993 it was like a um a 60 minutes of sports a sports illustrated like type thing and uh, nike were our major sponsors uh, in australia and they were able to get the deal done so on that trip i went with a producer stephen phillips who's no longer with us who's a very well-known producer and on-air personality in australia um and Jordan was the main fair. The the other big interview we did on that same trip was Carl Lewis. Now you can imagine how big he was in nineteen ninety three. So it was it was big stuff. Yeah. And I did I did have that that sense of privilege, uh, a once in a lifetime opportunity, uh, going to Chicago. And I think you're right. You said a moment ago that he was just about in his physical prime. Um, the whole Air Jordan Nike relationship had exploded at that stage he was the most important athlete stroke sports person on the planet there was not a footballer that could come near him not an american footballer either or or, or a tennis player or whatever um lewis was probably in the in the, in the top eight or ten at the time so yeah no the jordan thing so we spent five days six days in chicago and that went to two matches uh, at the old center inside the rooms before and after the matches sat on courtside, went to two training sessions and spent uh, probably about 45 minutes in a one-on-one with him. This probably uh, encapsulates him to me a bit. The first night we went to the match and we went into the rooms after the match, you know, I'm, you know, eyes open and can't believe myself. And I walked out and I'm walking with Stephen <laughs> down the corridor and Jordan comes behind us and he, I turned and he looked and I, you know, I hadn't caught his eye before that and hadn't tried to. And he said, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I thought, wow, okay, <laughs> that is so cool. Um, anyway, so but he was so confident. Now, you know all this, we all yeah. know. He was so confident. He was so sure of his place. Um, and whilst yeah. there were security buzzing around him, and Lee, he, he just understood where he, where he sat. He realised, and, you know, looking at that documentary last night for the first, first time and realising, you know, I, realized, I knew what a career he had at North Carolina. I remember so well about 1984 and the impact he had at those Olympic Games. I was there. But, um, yeah, he was a guy that was just proud um, and just had this aura that was uh, rare, absolutely yeah. rare. So what a privilege for me and, and what an experience when I look back on it. And this, and this documentary has, has actually ignited those flames yet again because sometimes they – they do dull after you know thirty years, so to speak. Yeah, uh, he was on his best behaviour too with you. I noticed uh, he's been uh, dropping a few. Uh, he's been swearing a little bit in this documentary, but uh, certainly <laughs> none of that. In. <laughs> no, no. That. Now uh, you mentioned uh, Los Angeles there in nineteen eighty four, and I'm glad you brought that up because. You were there. That was your first Olympics that you actually were in attendance for. I know you covered Moscow in 1980 from the studio in Adelaide. Um, but Jordan had just been drafted at that point, and, and the U.S. went out and they won. But he wasn't 
I mean, they weren't uh, professionals weren't allowed to play then. So how different was it? And, and what was the impact the Dream Team had on the entire Olympics experience? Because, you know, I, I remember at the time how excited I was being a basketball fan that the Dream Team would come together. And it couldn't have been a more perfect storm of players, you know, Magic and Larry and Charles and David Robinson, you know, just the legends of the game all coming together. Uh, and then, of course, Michael Jordan. I mean, was, was there a sense around the Olympic village that perhaps these guys are almost taking too much attention away from other athletes who, you know, for that two weeks, every four years, this is their time to shine. I mean, was, was the U S like almost like, Hey, we're, we're taking over an event that is usually not for professional athletes or certainly professional basketball players. That was the big discussion. That was the big argument, wasn't it? And, And from my personal experience and from my observations, it was a, it was a big tick. It was it was a great thing that happened to the Olympic Games. It, it took it in one way, if it's possible, to another level. The Olympics have been through some tough times. You, you know, you think 1972, 1976, you know, 1980, 1984, you know, 88 even, a, a smaller boycott, yeah. but all the problems in Korea. So this was like a, almost like the one thing it, it needed in so many ways. And you know, it was interestingly because I was always under the, the assumption that, you know, the Americans probably, because they didn't make the final in 1988, their basketball team, they were beaten by the Soviets in the yeah. semifinal, that, you know, this was something they really wanted. But that wasn't the case. I mean, the Ameri- they actually voted against it. So, it was a, you know, it was a vote of 59-13 from, um, from the basketball world authority of whether or not they would open it up and that was i think in 1989 and america actually voted against it but but the other most of the other countries wanted it to happen because it, what it meant was that their best players could go and play in the nba and still be eligible for the olympics they didn't mind getting beaten by the americans they wanted to play yeah. against the best so whilst the americans there was some pushback to keep it as a college event there was um there was an overwhelming sense by the rest of the world we wanted these guys here and that's the feeling i got in barcelona from the rest of the world we wanted those guys there and you're right i mean in 1992 if the dream team had not been there then the biggest star would have been you know carl lewis or linford christie or alexander popoff or or, you know a a swimmer or track and field athlete and michael johnson was starting his career there he had food poisoning so it didn't quite work for him but but the biggest (laughs) stars by far and away were that collective group that you mentioned. And as you said, yeah. we've never seen a team quite like it. Chuck Daly had probably the easiest job in the world. But I thought they handled <laughs> themselves superbly. I mean, Charles was out there, but we all loved that. And, um, you know, Michael and Magic. I mean, the, all those names, all those names, all yeah. of them are bona fide superstars. But to have Magic and Michael together, that made it, that made it so special. Uh, it was a remarkable time. Yeah, I think Chuck Daly said he was taking his golf clubs and no no suits out there to Barcelona. He was like, I'm, you know, we're, we're going to win. And, and I mean, I think the final was somewhat close. I think they ended up winning by 30, but uh, they were sort of, it was tight in that first half. But I mean, that's a thing. When you have all those players and all those stars and they're expected to go out and just annihilate the rest of the competition and then they do it, you know, playing this glorious basketball. I mean, it was just, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch and, and it really did uh, show their dominance. And, you know, when you look at Australia where how far Australia has come as a basketballing nation as well we still haven't medaled at the world championships or the Olympics but man we've been close and and you know you look at guys like we've got now Ben Simmons and Patty Mills you know uh, guys who are playing key roles on teams I mean in 1992 I think we had you know Andrew Gaze and and, uh, Luke Longley was there and Vlahov you know guys who were good I mean Luke Longley was a high draft pick but these guys now we're seeing and Joe Ingles is another one you know key players on NBA teams and I think you know, basketball has been big in Australia, but again, seeing these players on the big stage performing well, um, you know, it, it's it's really good to see that we are able to sort of at least keep up with some of the bigger teams in the world. And I mean, we, we you know, we should have had a couple of medals by now, um, you know, so hopefully, hopefully we can pick one up in Tokyo, uh, well, next year, I guess now. But, you know, for me anyway, as a basketball fan, it's great to see the growth of basketball uh, within Australia, and uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen that too uh, over those last few Olympics as Australia gets closer to you know to medalling. Men and women. I mean, a women's team has medaled on a number of occasions. Yeah, They've yeah. been in the finals a couple of times and gave the Americans a run for their money at one yeah, stage. Yeah. But there is an ex- Lee, there is an expectation here that we 
have our best chance of getting a medal. I mean, we want Simmons to be playing next year, and you know that's always a little doubtful, but uh, we think that'll happen. But there is an expectation here. This is our best shot, so I'm pleased that you're thinking similarly. But yeah. um, and it would be a major event in this country if we were to get to the. Uh, to the final four, so to speak, at the Olympic Games and to get that medal that we haven't been able to get because we've promised it a couple of times um, and we're in a more powerful position than we've ever been. Look, just locally, quickly, the NBL went through, it was booming, you know, 20, 25 years ago, as you would yeah. well know. And then it went through a really, really difficult stage. And the last two or three years, it's been quite phenomenal, the comeback of the National Basketball League here in Australia. So it's been great. It's been great to see and to observe. It's it's funny because I've um, through my work I've met Brett Brown a couple of times and it's funny talking to him because I used to watch him coaching the North Melbourne Giants you know with with Dave Simmons and uh, Cecil Exum and now you know he's obviously coaching Ben Simmons and Dante Exum's in the league um, you know it's it, it's kind of mind blowing to see like these guys who we used to watch now their kids are playing at a higher level uh, than their fathers achieved in terms of you know the international basketball there for playing for the NBA but. Um, you know, speaking of the Olympics, um, you know, and you sort of you sort of mentioned it there with Barcelona. Um, do you feel right now the Olymp- the Olympics has the same appeal that it used to have? Because again, growing up as a kid, every four years, I remember the the build up to Seoul and then Barcelona and then of course Atlanta. Here, um, I couldn't wait for the Olympics, but it feels like the last couple of Olympics hasn't been that big a deal. I mean, what's the atmosphere been like for you being on the ground and around the, the sports and the athletes and, and just if it does have that same appeal that it once had? Rio certainly didn't. Um, you, you felt like, even though, I mean, I still had a, a great experience and, and, you know, Usain Bolt and, and all the things that I was, and Wade Van Niekirk and all the things that I was able to, to witness in track and field and the other bits and pieces I did there. But you felt like when you were in Rio, you were in a city that was on its knees, that right. it was a bridge too far. They'd had the World Cup football two years earlier. Brazil hadn't done what they wanted them to do in that, that tournament. Uh, they were going through an economic downturn like few others. And yet when they had been given the Olympics seven years earlier, they were they were booming. So when you we got to Rio, it was a city that was struggling and you felt like we were almost intruding. And, the, and you know, it was the haves and the have-nots. So it was an unsatisfying experience in some ways, and yet the sport was still outstanding. But I've never been at an Olympic stadium in track and field where there were so few people. There were, it was a right. smaller stadium. It was about... Oh, 45,000, 50,000 uh, capacity. And uh, Lee, it was only a couple of times it was filled. It was quite remarkable because generally those eighty or 100,000 stadiums are filled to the brim on most nights. But, yeah, um, London was a massive success four years earlier. And, look, look, equal to Sydney in 2000. Um, it's a good question you raise. Look, it, it might be as simple as this, Lee, and I, I, I'm as enthusiastic as probably I've ever been in terms of my personal experience and the way I prepare and the way and the enjoyment I actually get out of calling them because the bigger picture about where they sit I, I think you've raised an interesting point and one of the things I think of is this growing up and I'm older than you I was born in 1953 <laughs> growing up in Australia we never got to see a Super Bowl the only real right. international sport that we saw were the FA Cup final uh, Wimbledon and the Olympic Games. You know, the Tour de France, we only got to see much later than that. Um, American basketball, American football, ice hockey, Major League Baseball, um, EPL, um, you name it. Um, all the, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the masters and the, the majors in golf and tennis. So, so now we see high-class, elite, world-level sport Every day, every week, uh, not at the moment because of certain circumstances, but for the last, say, <laughs> yeah. 20 years. So that wow factor of the Olympics has been diminished a little because we are spoilt for riches. So I think that's what's happened. I think the level has come up around it and we're exposed to a lot of things that we weren't exposed to. And that once every four year experience, whilst it still remains integral, is probably not has probably doesn't have the same hold that it had on mm. our nation and the rest of the world. So that that's probably the way I look at it anyway. 
Do you, do you think the controversy surrounding the bidding process and, and, you know, you mentioned Rio there, like every city seems to just be financially bankrupt for, you know, decades in some cases after the Olympics that, you know, and, and they've already announced like the, the games are coming to Los Angeles in 2028. It seems like less cities are sort of looking at it now to even to even host because, it, you know, you hear about it, it costing billions and then, you know, a, a week after the Olympics are, are gone, those uh, a lot of those arenas are just you know they 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 left to rot. Um, I know you know Athens is is an example of that where you know they they build all these arenas for baseball and things like that that are just not sports they play out there, and then they leave and then the city's just got to pick up the tab. I mean, do you think that has any any factor at all that cities, you know, they're not craving for it anymore? It's a complex question that you're asking me. I'll go back quickly. 1984, the first one I attended, as you said, that changed it forever because uh, Peter Uberoth was in charge of those Olympics and commercialised them. We had the McDonald's swimming pool. I mean, the International Olympic Committee allowed things with advertising at venues that they'd never allowed before. I mean, Moscow, they bankrolled it. Obviously, the Soviets, Montreal went broken, 76, Munich. Well, they had, you know, the massacre, yeah. which was devastating. But in 84, Peter Uberoth and Los Angeles changed the whole sort of concept. But not every country picked it up. I mean, Seoul was state-run. Barcelona pretty went, much went broke, a beautiful stadium. Atlanta had lots of other problems, but Coca-Cola sort of bankrolled it a bit and other things. Uh, and NBC, obviously, heavily involved. Sydney, it worked very well. Athens, you've t- said, and on and on to Beijing and that. But... You are right in that way, but what I think the International Olympic Committee has understood is we've got a problem. We've mm. got a problem with corruption within our own organisation. We've got a problem with the perception of who we are and what we do. And we've also got a problem with you know cities going bankrupt. And when I started to first do those Olympic Games, there'd be eight or nine cities bidding like crazy. And when I went, yeah. I went to Monaco in 1993, the same year that I did the Jordan interview, not long after that, and was there for the announcement of Sydney getting the Olympics. And that was a final field of five, I think, at the time, and that had been wilted down from about nine. No longer is that the case. And what the International Olympic Committee have done for the very first time, instead of seven years out, which has always been the model of, of the modern era, era um, they've now pushed, as you say, 24 and 28. So what they did with Paris and Los Angeles, basically they got down to two cities after Tokyo, which, and these were the only the two cities that they thought, thought were viable. So they went to those cities and said, do you know what? Let's not bid Paris against Los Angeles because someone's going to be a loser and we might not get them back in 2028. So what they did, right. they went to the two and said, well, Paris should have 24 because it's the 100th anniversary, the centenary anniversary of their second Olympics in 1924. So that makes sense. So why don't you, Paris, have uh, 2024 in LA? It'll be your third games as well. You have 2028. Now, Brisbane is a big chance of getting 2032. And I think we'll know that in the next one, uh, next year or two. So they have changed their model. But the crux of your your question was, is that a turnoff for the viewer? Is that a turnoff for the public that Mm. all these, you know, the Salt Lake City corruptions and all those things? I don't think so necessarily because does the National Football League in America ever have controversy? Do they ever have bad stories to the NBA? Sure they do, and so do AFL here. It just yeah. fuels the fire. Yeah. So I think those those talking points that make fans so mad and so ropeable actually ignite rather than douse a flame. So I don't think that is yeah. the case with the Olympics, but I do think with the Olympics what is the case is there's a lot more opposition in terms of big-time sport than there was in the past. But I do think the IOC, they're slow learners, but I think they are starting to. <laughs> I think they're starting to get it. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, you know, like I live in Atlanta now, and um, you know, you see reminders around the city of where you know the Olympics were here in in 1996. And I sometimes think I don't even know how this city was able to host the Olympics. Like traffic is a nightmare here. You know, it's not even a that big a city really downtown. But um, you know, I guess they pulled it off. The US always seems to be able to find the the infrastructure and the resources uh, to get it done. But um, I want to take you to 1988 because uh, this was uh, an incredible moment. And I know you called this race, and it was one of you know the most anticipated races in in history and it was obviously the 100 meter men's final there you know carl lewis of the, the glory child in uh, in 1984 but then ben johnson was coming out of nowhere and, and and he was clearly you know a big rival to carl lewis and lewis didn't think he could beat him 
And you know, what's really interesting about this, because I watched it over again, your actual call of the race. And after the race, you, you know, you say, great race, set the record. And then you say afterwards, uh, if it's legal. And it was almost like in your voice, you sensed that perhaps, you know, we let's not get too excited because he's just blitzed Carl Lewis. He's won the world record here. You know, he had that triumphant celebration, Ben Johnson, as he crossed the line, the finger in the air. But knowing what we know now, and it's obviously 2020 with hindsight, listening to the, to the sort of tone of your voice, it sounded to me like you almost weren't convinced that it was clean. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? It is, but it's not that common. And thank you for giving me um, giving me that kudos for I don't deserve it. But this is what happened. When I meant legal, it was the wind. So right. the world record he ran nine point he ran nine point seven nine. I think the world record was nine point eight three that he that he'd run in Rome the year before. But when I said if it's legal, it was whether the wind you know two meters behind him, whether or not that was. Um, inside that mark. But then as he did his lap of honour, now my memory, um, I remember thinking out loud and saying out loud, it's fascinating what's happened to Johnson in the last two or three weeks because what happened, Lee, um, Ben Ben had finished third in 1984. Ben was a world-class athlete, but in 1986 he really took off. But in 87 he, he exploded basically and he beat Lewis and a remarkable final, the World Championships in Rome. And that was really the setting for what was going to take place the next year. And they had this incredible rivalry. They didn't like each other genuinely. There was no put on. And as you say, they were, you know, Big Bad Ben and, and, and the glory child, Carl, who did rub people up the wrong way in his own way, but was, was the golden boy from Los Angeles. But Johnson started 1988 in a blaze of glory, but he got beaten twice just before the Olympics, once in Cologne and once in Zurich from memory. And then he went back to Canada and my heart and gut were telling me that things were happening um, mm. that shouldn't have been happening. And so that's what I was surmising when he was doing his lap of honour. Not sure what's happened in the last couple of weeks going back to Canada, but there was a different <laughs> Ben Johnson today. Because yeah. going into that race, going into that race, he, he full started in the semi-final, and he, he looked like he might actually be disqualified if you have a full start now you're out but you could used to have two then but look there was a feeling that lewis was favorite when they went to the blocks on that day and yet ben blew him away um so much so that carl basically ran out of his lane and was lucky not to be disqualified himself but but and then the aftermath was the most shocking thing it was the biggest it was the biggest race i believe in olympic history and I think you summed it up perfectly. It, there was nothing quite like it. It was, it was, you know, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. It was, it was, um, you know, the the big matchup that we always want to see: Messi versus Ronaldo, whatever it yeah. might be. And and it was a once in a lifetime situation. And and you know, it was an incredible race. And then of course the aftermath was even more shocking. We thought then that maybe this would be the turning point. Yeah. Maybe the Dubin and Macquarie in Canada would change everything. But unfortunately, we're still having the same problem, aren't we? Yeah, it's funny with Ben Johnson. Uh, when I, I lived in Toronto for a while and I was actually a producer for an interview with him and the, and it was basically on the Olympics and athletics and, and he was really he was really disappointed with Canadian sort of politics and the athletics chiefs because he was like, they knew what I was doing and then once I got caught, they just abandoned me and basically said it was mm. all him. He had nothing to do with it. And he, he, you know, you could sort of tell in his voice that he was like, they just like left me out to dry, um, and and you know uh, he's the guy who's the bad boy. Whereas basically everyone in that race ended up being uh, caught for doing some sort of drug or some sort of uh, performance enhancer. So it's crazy when you look back to see just how. I mean, we know with Carl Lewis. I mean, he, he certainly had his issues that uh, even in Los Angeles, you know, he was lucky to even be competing because uh, it was the the U.S. Olympic team. I think sort of cleared him, you know, under sort of suspicious circumstances, but. Uh, Again, back then, well, I say back then, but you're right. I mean, things still now, I mean, still people are using performance enhancing drugs um, uh, all the time. So it's uh, it's crazy. But, you know, I would love to have been in Seoul on that a couple of days. Left. I think it was the Tuesday, was it, when he came out and it was the uh, the positive drug test and he was stripped of his gold and, and, he, and he left straight away and just in, in disgrace. Look, it was. It was just the most remarkable few days. It really was. Um, Flojo, of course, was 
doing incredible things. Um, yeah. Florence Griffith Joyner, she broke the world record twice on the yeah. within two hours in the 200 metres. But yeah, it was on the Tuesday morning. Um, and the International Olympic Committee made a big mistake. When that announcement happened, they should have re-presented the medals and Lewis should have got the gold medal. Now, I know what you said is a fact about the fact that most of those athletes are being tainted in one way or another, but they should have re-presented those medals and first, second and third should have been taken into the main stadium and given those medals, I believe. But they they didn't um, and uh, and we moved on. But it was, a, it was a, 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 a remarkable few days in the history of, Olympic sprinting and the Olympic Games in general. And, of course, uh, you know, that was four years before what we started talking about, the yeah. the dream team and their, their arrival, which changed things again. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we, we know that uh, Paris and Los Angeles are coming up. Just before we move on from the Olympics, is there a city that you would love to see host the Games? That's a good question. And it it's a, it's a fine balance between what's the best type of city. Is it, you know, is it the Londons? Is it the... Is it the um, the Tokyos, Paris? They've all had them. Those major cities. Look, New York. Now you're going to laugh a bit. You know, what are the great cities of the world? Well, yeah. that's number one. I would have thought. So, in answer to your question, probably New York. Now, God, the infrastructure and the, and and the problems they might have. Because there's an irony, isn't it? That the bigger the city, almost the more difficult it is to host yeah. the biggest event. But I'd say New York. Um, if it were possible and the downsizing in some ways of the games and in terms of what you have to build these days and you know you can use facilities you've already got so i would have thought uh that would be the one that i would love to see hosted in my lifetime yeah i think i think they've got the infrastructure as far as the arenas and stadiums ready but getting around would just be an absolute nightmare i think i mean the, the city struggles already just with you know just with the people who live there so if you bring in another I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand uh, athletes and supporters and fans and, and teams, like it could just be a, a complete disaster. But you're right. I mean, it's, you know, New York is one of those cities that it's never bad to visit. Everyone loves going to New York. You have a great time there. But, uh, you know, they could, they could pull it off, I'm sure. But, yeah, it wouldn't be without a few headaches along the way. The Black Tux believes every group deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. If you're getting married on the beach... Don't wear sneakers. Anyway, did you know that the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tuck shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you like dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code DUNKS. That's theblacktux.com, code DUNKS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Moving on from the Olympics, I want to take you now a little closer to home, to, uh, to Aussie rules. Now, we, we sort of talked about it there off the top. Obviously, this season is, uh, is on hold for now. Um, you know, you started calling in the mid or late 80s, I guess, Aussie rules football. Um, and do you have any idea how many games uh, of Aussie rules football you've called? Lee, I don't. Um, um, you know, if I put my mind to it, I'd maybe come up with an approximation, but I, 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 I don't. Um, I don't keep stats on myself. <laughs> and I, um, so I, I look, I, I started, um, so 30, 30 years ago, basically doing the AFL. I'd done some um, football in South Australia before that, before I went and lived in Melbourne for, you know, a decade and a half and 
before we came back to South Australia. But um, and then we didn't have we didn't have football. The network I worked for for five years in the early part of the 21st century. So yeah. you know, I guess I've been calling for about 25, 26 years. Um, you know, and probably do 30 to 35 matches a year. Used to do a bit more than that. So you know, you could I guess we could work it out that way. But you know, it, it's quite a few hundred, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is it is incredible. Again, I mean, like so I remember from uh, being a teenager listening, and uh, and I know you still do it now. I, I saw you there last year, of course, at the MCG on a Friday night. Um, you know, we we sort of touched on a little bit earlier as well. You know, when when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have the access to these international sports, and I think Australian rules football benefited from that because. You know, you knew that other players in in other sports earn more money, but they weren't really Australians doing that. Now that you see, you know, a Ben Simmons earning, you know, 150 million dollars a year playing, bar- or not a year, but uh, over the over his contract playing basketball, you know, is AFL going to face competition soon where they're like, you know, kids are going to grow up and saying, well, I can make, you know, one or two million Australian dollars here playing Aussie rules football, or I can make you know, potentially a hundred and you know two hundred million playing basketball or even soccer or baseball or something like that. I mean, is that a problem that the AFL is is looking at right now and 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 trying to figure out a way to make sure that you know kids still grow up wanting to play our national game? It, it's a it's a challenge, but um, Lee, what it gets down to, I think, is this. I mean, what are young men and women exposed to on television in a in a wider sense at the moment it's still Aussie rules or or rugby league or whatever so I, I think it's still the aspiration of most Australians to play the national game rather than the international game not all of them but I don't think there'll ever be a lack of young men and women that want to play Aussie rules because on a Friday night you know it's the highest ratings of the week and on a Saturday night something similar it's like your Monday night football or Saturday night or Sunday night football now so um I it it, it just, it's become more of a challenge and there are a lot of Australians that are doing great things in lots of sports overseas but I still feel there are a huge number of uh, young Australians that want to play the national game and will continue to play it because our game is getting bigger as well and everything is relative and you know our players our top players here earn you know between about one million and one and a half million maybe a little bit more than that and most of the top Aussie rules players are getting between say six hundred thousand and one and a half million dollars now it's small fare compared with the big american sports and and the big football players around the world but in terms of what other people in this country are earning in other sports and it's it's a pretty big deal so yeah a challenge but not one that i think will be overwhelming and not one that i think will decrease uh the value of the competition and the interest in the competition Okay, well, speaking of challenges, that's great because that's a great segue into this next uh, little segment I've got here. It's a game we play uh, with all our guests, and it's called What You Got. What you got? What you got? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present two sort of cases to you, and you have to pick which one if out of these two, you know, you think is, is the best. I've got five categories here, and uh, they, they, they should be tough for you. I'm hoping they're going to be tough for you, so you're going to really have to, uh, you know, really have to put your, put your money on one of these horses here, okay? Yeah. Okay. So we're, going, we're staying with the Olympics now. It's the best individual Australian performance, not including Kathy Freeman, because I thought of when I was doing research for this, I thought, I don't really think any Australian performance is going to beat Kathy in Sydney. So... I'm going with the next best that I thought uh, that, that I thought you'll choose out of these two. Uh, Ian Thorpe's 200 metres, the race of the century in Athens, 2004, or Kieran Perkins' 1500 metres in Atlanta, where he was in lane eight, not in Barcelona in '92, where he was pretty dominant. In Atlanta, where you know he was uh, he was up against it. So out of Ian Thorpe and Kieran Perkins, what which one do you think uh, is 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 a you know sort of bigger performance? I, I'm. I'm... I'm going to go against the odds there, and I'm going to go, even though the Perkins one is a bigger event in this country, and, and look, it's one of the iconic events, within swimming, Thorpe's is rated just as highly, if not um, above it. But I'm going to go with Thorpe. Um, you know, he beat Bannon, Hoogerban, Phelps, Hackett, um, amongst others, uh, Keller, I think. Uh, but I, I'm going to go with Thorpe. As you say, it was about as good a race as you could ever get. 
Yeah, it was it was amazing. Again, when I was uh, researching this, I was just watching those over and I found myself just, you know, going down all these rabbit holes of Australian uh, swimming performance at the Olympics. And, you know, the Perkins one in Barcelona was great. But then I thought, I think I think the one in Atlanta is better just because, again, it was against the odds. So, um, you know, yeah. it, it was it was a great performance. OK, uh, best individual uh, performance at the Olympics, non in, non Australian uh, uh, bracket this time. Usain Bolt, 100 metres in Beijing versus Michael Johnson, 200 metres here in Atlanta. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous question. That is so difficult. Um, they, both, they, they both were just wow, yeah. both of them. Um, uh, I think at the time but, with Michael Johnson, you said uh, it was the best performance you had ever seen. Um, but of course, that yeah. was 1996 versus 2008. It, but uh, it was it was Beeman-esque, you know. It was Beeman-esque yeah. Johnson, you know. But yeah. I'm going to say Bolt because he hadn't been ranked in the top. He hadn't been ranked in the top 10 100 meter runners the year before. He'd come from nowhere, um, yeah. and the what he did in the last 10 meters of that race was extraordinary. And it was also the birth of the Muhammad Ali of track and field. So I think in some ways it was. It was the beginning of, I think, the richest story in athletics history, and that's the Usain Bolt story. So it's so close and so tight, as was Thorpe and Perkins, but I'll say Bolt. Yeah. Um, the thing with Bolt, uh, I believe it was Beijing, he kind of is almost pulling up too at the end. Like, I would love it if the world that's record, exactly. I feel... Yeah, I feel the world record for the for the hundred meters, particularly the men's uh, hundred meters here, it should always be an Olympic world record. And and I mean, it, you know, it's possible that no one will beat what he did in Berlin, you know, and that'll be the world record in the hundred meters. And it, it's sort of for me, I'm like, I just would always like it to be at the Olympics. It's just something it feels to me like that's where the world the world record belongs. You know, I do get what you mean, and but not many world records are set at the Olympics. Um, no, they're hard to get, and particularly in middle distance and distance races because of the lack of pacemakers and the marathons because it's always hot. Whereas you know, the the the, the marathons are now usually in Berlin or somewhere like that where the temperatures are, are conducive to it. So, look, um, yeah, Bolt ran 9.69, then he ran 9.58 the next year. And, of course, in the yeah. 200 metres, he, you know, oh. he did something very similar, but yeah. 1930 and 1919. But, yeah, look, such a difficult, good question, but I, I'm, <laughs> as was Perkins. And I feel, I feel to- sorry that I didn't pick Kieran in the way, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with Thorpe and Bolt. Keep going. Okay, okay, great. Well, this one's a little closer to home. It's uh, Australian Rules Football. Best ever Norm Smith medal performance. I've got Andrew McLeod in 1997 versus St Kilda. Or Michael Long, 1993 versus Carlton. There was a ton I could have chosen from here, uh, but I, I picked two that I thought, again, that are, that are pretty hard to split. Uh, two great Indigenous <laughs> players. Um, I'm going to say Michael Long. I mean, McLeod won two of them, actually, 97 and 98. 97 yes. was a superior performance yep. to 98. But I'm going to say Long, and part of it was the whole sort of September for Michael Long and that long run, you know, against uh, to the city end of the ground. But, ah, uh, gee... Uh, as you say, you could have thrown you could have thrown a few more. No, I'll go with Michael Long, all right? So yeah, keep yeah. going. These these are these are, okay. these are going to give me night, nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were so many I could have chosen out of that, and I, I thought, well, I'll just I, I thought because the thing with Andrew McLeod for me, again, the the Crows were not the favourite going in there against St Kilda. They were down at half time, and it looked it just sort of felt like the Crows weren't going to win it that year. They had that, such an emotional victory against the Doggies the week before. You thought maybe that was their grand final. But then in that second half, McLeod, just, he was just unbelievable and uh, easily one of my top three or four Aussie Rules players I've ever seen. I mean, he was great. It's funny, you know, talk about Michael Long. Um, again, when I was going down this rabbit hole, it brought up a game, actually not a good game for Long. He injured his knee against Geelong. It was that centennial game in 96. But also in that game, Darren Buick came back from a knee injury and kicked nine goals and was just one of those um, typical Darren Buick electrifying games where every single goal he celebrates as if he's just kicked the winning goal in the grand final. And you, you were on that call with Malcolm Blight. Do you remember much about that one? Vaguely. I mean, you're reminding me of stuff that, you know, long long ago down a rabbit hole that I never look into, to be truthful. But <laughs> yeah, I remember, remember the way Buick would celebrate and the type of player he was. And now that you're reminded of... Uh, Michael Long, and of course, you mentioned Malcolm Blight, who was the coach for Andrew McLeod in those oh, those yeah. two premierships. So, so yeah, no, um, they're great memories. Um, yeah, and the, uh, part of the reason maybe I've gone for Long is just the the influence that he's had on 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 
a whole generation of Indigenous players. Now, yeah. Andrew's doing great work as well. I mean, they've both done some incredible things for their yeah. for their uh, for their people, and uh, we applaud them for what they're doing off the field as much as, if not more, from what they did on the field in those you know those those glory days for them in the nineties and in two thousands for Andrew. Yeah. Okay. Two more now. These ones I'm I'm bringing it back to where it all began for you on the racetrack. Okay. And so these last two are both horse races. The first one is the best Melbourne Cup winner of all time. Now I'm taking Maccabi Diva out of this because I think she would probably win. So I'm going to present two to you. Um, and one of them is is uh, is is a, I have got a fond memory of because it was the first time I ever backed a Melbourne Cup winner. It was Empire Rose in 1988 versus Might and Power in 1997. Empire Rose, I don't know if you remember, she came over, won the McKinnon. She became, I think, favourite for the for the Melbourne Cup a couple of days later. And she was so big that she she finished the race. She won the race. But Natsuki, who came second, actually crossed the line in totality first before Empire Rose, Empire Rose actually finished. So Empire Rose versus Might and Power, 1988 versus 1997. I back both those winners. And I don't back too many winners of the Melbourne Cup. And I actually, <laughs> I, I feel near and dear to Empire Rose because... That was the last Melbourne Cup I called, um, oh, wow. and I, and I, I, I had her winning the race in a photo, and as you say, it was tight, and I had a couple of moments there where I was really hanging on for dear life, hoping I got it right, because that's the one thing you don't want to get wrong, is a photo finish in a Melbourne Cup. Look, they were both great finishers, Might and Power just holding off Doremus, and the jockey of Doremus thought he'd won, he put his whip in the air, he'd been a winner two years earlier, but... Great horses, both of them. Empire Rose, I think, ran in four Melbourne Cups, and that was the yeah. third one. Um, I'm going to go with Might and Power. Right. It was a remarkable win. He led all the way. He was taken on on a couple of occasions, mid-race, where horses w- went up and tried to take the lead off him, and he refused to yield, and then in the straight he kicked away and then held on and won by the narrowest of margins. So Might and Power for me, but boy, they're tough for going. <laughs> <laughs> Would you pick Mokaibi Diva over Might and Power if, if, it was, uh, if that was in the case? Well, singular performance maybe not, but, but right. her body of work de- yes. definitely, you know. Yeah. The only horse to have won the race on, on three occasions. So, yeah. had, you know, four, other, four others have won it twice in 160 years, and she won it three times, so it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Okay, the last one here. I've got to set the scene for this one because this one's going to be a big one. And I, and I think, you know, to finish on this one is appropriate. So it's a Saturday afternoon at Flemington. Beautiful day, a good track. This race is 1,400 metres or seven furlongs, but it's only a two-horse race. It's kind of like, do you remember Better Loosen Up versus Let's Elope in the Super Challenge? They, they raced against each other, I think 1991 maybe or 92. But these Cawthorn, yep, yep. Yeah, okay, these two horses. So this is a... This is a uh, you know, uh, I'm just making this race up, so you have to tell me who you think's winning. It's Black Caviar versus Winks. And I, I spoke to a friend of mine. We've got Luke Nolan on board Black Caviar and Hugh Bowman on board Winks. And I spoke to a friend of mine who, who likes a punt, and I said, just set me, give me some odds for a race like this. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, the distance here probably favours Black Caviar more than Winks. She was, a, she was a sprinter, whereas Winks liked it a little bit longer. So he, he put Black Caviar at $1.70, and winks at 2.20 going into this race. Now, you can give me an answer if you want, or you can even just leave it up to the gods and even call the last furlong if you want. It's up to you to just see who would win out and, of these two. <laughs> look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an answer. I, I, I probably should try calling, but I, I've got a, our dog Frankie's about five minutes away, and she hears me calling, she's going to bark her head off. So um, it, I reckon your friend's a good judge, whoever that friend is. Um, she only raced once over 1,400 metres, Black Caviar, and she trotted in. So all her other races were over 1,000, 1,100 yeah. or 1,200. So five furlongs or six furlongs in your language. But um, And Winx was probably at her absolute best between eight furlongs and, and ten furlongs. Um, gee. Um, <laughs> it would be a bob of the head and... Uh, I'm going to pick Winks. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take the two the two dollars twenty. I'm going to think that she can get into the slipstream of Black Caviar at some stage in the straight, and she can just just get over the top of her. It would be the most remarkable thing to witness. So, uh, 
yeah there you go yeah oh well that that's uh that's great i mean uh again when i was when i was sort of putting all this together i, I thought uh you know obviously olympics and athletics and, and aussie rules football but I, again i know you know where you started there in adelaide i read that uh you know you were um you were basically you didn't have a job and and you, you sort of found your way into um helping out with the sports and then that got you into horse racing which led to an opportunity uh with channel seven in adelaide i believe and uh i mean you know the rest is history when you when you look back at everything you've achieved and, uh, and accomplished and, and speaking to some of these athletes, I mean, that's that's a dream. I mean, it really is a dream for, for so many kids growing up to actually live it. I think uh, it must feel pretty special for you to, to look back on all that now. It, it does, Lee, and I, it's something that I reflect on occasionally, particularly you know, when I'm doing something like this. But um, like everybody else, I'm sort of still looking for the next challenge. I've got a you know, six-hour telecast tomorrow, um, which is going to be very different. We're you know involved in a something we've never tried before. Uh, two different programs, uh, networks covering the one event, and I've got to go between the two of them. So, um, and I'm 67 years of age, almost 66. So, what I'm, I guess what, all I'm saying to you is, um, it's it's a great thing to do to reflect. I'm still thinking present and future, and I am looking forward to the day where I guess I can look back and say, well, I did my best, and I've yeah. been very fortunate i mean my whole career has been about opportunity um and i hope i've risen to the occasion i know i haven't always i know i've done my best most of the time and that's been the challenge for me but my whole career has been about opportunity i've been fortunate yeah, but well, I mean, you know, I think we all look back and, you know, we have moments that we think about and think, damn, I, you know, screwed up that day or I did this wrong. But again, overall, I mean, when it comes to anything Australian, you know, people recognize your voice and they know immediately that you've done the research, you've done the work and, and you know what you're talking about. And, and that, to me, I think is just what's uh, also, you know, you respect so much because, you want to you want to be at that level of professionalism across several sports. Not many people can do that. You know, there, there are a few guys around the world. I, I don't know if you've, you've. I'm sure you've probably met Bob Costas at some point. You know, who um, I, when when I was telling the guys who I was interviewing you, I said, you know, Bob Costas is a good reference because he's kind of done every sport here for America for NBC. He's not not with NBC anymore, but you know, he he just has that professionalism that you trust him that he knows what he's talking about. And and I think uh, you know, for you. Uh, I feel the same way about that. You know, any time I've heard your voice, uh, you know, calling a sport over the years, it's like, well, Bruce is right. He, I know that he's done the research. I know he's ready to go. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, that that's really something that several people look up to and admire about you. Well, Lee, thank you. Look, I, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting Bob on a number of occasions. I got to know him pretty well, and that was mainly surrounding the 2000 Olympics when. They spent a lot of time in Sydney, and uh, Dick Ebersole was the head of NBC Sport at the mm-hmm. time. And, uh, no, Bob, uh, a gentleman, and I had a chance to go into the NBC studios uh, when he was hosting a Sunday night match when NBC got the NFL back a few, quite a few years ago now. But, yeah, no, he's a brilliant, brilliant commentator, broadcaster, analyst, uh, and as you say, he's so trustworthy. And uh, you always felt like the Olympics were in good hands when Costas was hosting or making um, a statement or having an opinion and um, NBC were well served for many, many years. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been fantastic chatting to you and I, and I hope uh, I hope we get to hear you calling the footy soon. And I mean, obviously, Tokyo has been postponed for now. I hope it's, uh, I hope we get Tokyo next year, but, but who knows at this point? Uh, things are a, a little bit crazy, but, uh, you know, again, I, I look forward to hearing you again calling the footy or, or athletics or whatever it may be. And, uh, and again, thank you for your time. Pleasure, Lee. It's been uh, it's been uh, a great trip down memory lane. Thank you. You could stay.